This is 21st Century Women podcast where we hear from fabulous women doing interesting things. And the goal is to celebrate their unique story while getting a dose of inspiration ourselves. I'm your host, Jenna Watts, and you're listening to episode number 87 with Khadija Blah, who is a feminist and human rights activist from Sierra Leone. She works as a cultural consultant, a keynote speaker, and an anti-FGM campaigner. She's also the director of Khadija Blah Cultural Consultancy and Desert Flower Centre Australia, award-winning human rights activist. A big warm welcome to Khadija. Thank you so much for having me. Let's take it all the way back to 1991 where war broke out in Sierra Leone and you and your family were in the midst of war and my understanding you were just three years old. Do you have any early childhood memories of this? Um, I, yeah, I was three when I officially became a refugee, which is quite a strange concept that a three-year-old could be a refugee, but I was. At the age of three, war, war broke out in Sierra Leone. My family were being prosecuted, so we had to get out. I remember vividly, you know, my mom saying we were not safe, that people wanted to kill us, people wanted to harm us, and I had a lot of family members killed. I sort of remembered, you know, the journey of trying to find safety. My mom putting my sister on her back, who was just a baby at the time trying to get us out safely you know seeing lots of horrible things that I won't describe in vivid uh, details but you can only imagine what war times would look like dead bodies people being killed people being shot women being raped taken into sexual slavery it was complete chaos so I always say it sort of feel like my start to life was you know of insecurity and unsafetyness and I've had to spend years trying to nurture safety within myself and in my environment but I became a refugee at the age of three and, you know, and then had to flee Sierra Leone. And then we ended up in Gambia in an unofficial refugee camp. Once again, another place with no security, a single mom, you know, with two kids. My mom had to look, that, look out for us, make sure we were safe. But, you know, you're in a refugee camp with all sorts of people. You know, you saw rape once again, sexual assault, um, theft, and just constant violence. And um, I say to people all the time, I feel like the first couple of years of my life, I I didn't play, there wasn't toys, there wasn't going to the playground, there wasn't the sense of, you know, hoping what I would become one day in life. It was just constant survival, not knowing if I would see my fifth birthday or let alone, you know, be an adult, um, not knowing, you know, if my mom could also be taken away from us or we would, you know, not survive. So it wasn't the best start of life, I have to say. So that, that was, yeah, what my childhood looked like. Where was your dad and why did why were your mum and dad separated when you were so young? My mom was my excuse me, my dad was actually killed during the war. That's why my mom had to raise us as a single mom. So only myself, my mom and my sister got away. And I have a very big family. My grandfather on my mother's side has had three wives. My grandfather on my father's side also had multiple wives. Don't ask me why anyone needs more than one fucking wife. But, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of grandmas and a lot of cousins and a lot of uncles and a lot of aunties. And I say to people all the day, say, it's a miracle to have an accidentally dated a cousin of mine in this modern age. But I have a very big family and most of them didn't survive. And if those who did survive had injuries because they were hurt, it was just me, my mom, and my sister who were able to actually get out until years later that we start to finding family who had got out in different parts of the world and, you know, now we're all connecting. But, yeah, it's always just been me, my mom, and my sister. I was raised by a very strong um, single mom who got us all the way to Australia to safety. 
Uh, when you say you can imagine, I actually, I actually cannot imagine all of this that you've described and that it's re- real for you know for anybody growing up. It just sounds so so scary and terrifying, for, you know, for an adult, let alone a child. Khadija, I watched one of your TED talks, and it was about female genital mutilation. And my understanding is you experienced this firsthand. How old were you when this happened? Um, I, I put it around the age of nine and ten. Eight numbers can be a bit fuzzy in survival mode, but mm. I placed it around that age. And we were in Gambia um, at the time. And, you know, I never knew what female genital mutilation was at all. And for the audience listening, female genital mutilation is the altering and the cutting of fem- the female genitalia of little girls. And it can happen between birth, from birth to, you know, adulthood. Um, and I didn't know. Nobody talked about this. I guess we were in survival mode. We had just come out of war. We were in a refugee camp. We were just, we didn't even know what tomorrow was going to bring. There was never any conversation about this practice. And But just before we came to Australia, my mom took me and my sister, you know, to an outer region. She said to us, we're going on a holiday. We should have been a warning sign because we're refugees. How the hell were we going to go on a holiday? It made no sense whatsoever. But in my culture, we're big on respect, and, and, and we have quite a hierarchical society. You know, as parents, you know, those who are older than you, you always follow the instructions. You don't question them. You say, yes, ma'am. So when she said we were going somewhere, you know, we didn't really question. It was like, okay, we're going somewhere. Our mom is taking us. We should be safe, right? You should be safe with your mom. They should be the safest people in the world. Um, so she took us, you know, we drove for hours. We ended up in a, a village in a very remote area. And I'm still going, you know, I'm old enough now this age to go, where are we, you know, what are we doing, why would we have a holiday in a bush somewhere, um, we got there, she got talking to this old, you know, very scary lady, I remember, she looked very scary to me, um, she got talking to her, still didn't understand what the conversation was about or why we were there, but the next thing I know, this lady goes back into a hut, she comes out, and she's holding this really rusty knife and this stands out to me because you know it's not every day you walk around seeing rusty knives but it was very orange like burnt orange knife she's holding on to it i'm thinking why are you holding on to this like what are you going to do with this my mom walked me into this other hut and then before i know it this all happened very quickly but she took my clothes off then she pinned me down on the floor and this old lady came towards me with this knife and i'm thinking she's gonna kill me why else will you have a knife um, she's going to slaughter me. That's what this is about. My mother has brought me here to be murdered. But that's not what this old lady did. She didn't come towards my face or towards my tummy. She went down to my private area and she took hold of what I now know to be my the clitoris. But in my language, there's not even a word for clitoris. It's funny that something so hated and, and butchered and mutilated actually has no word. There's actually not a name for it. But she took hold of it and she started cutting away. And I don't know if you can imagine what a rusty instrument can do to flesh. It is not the cleanest. It's not the fastest. It was hell. I must have passed out, come back to life, screamed, passed out, tried to get my mom off me, begging and pleading for her to make this stop. And she wasn't. This old lady kept on sawing and cutting away. And at some point, it was finished. And I'm lying there bleeding and the recurring thought is, what just happened, and why did my mom just let this happen? And days later, you know, she, my mom would make me sit in a bathtub of dead oil to, to disinfect the wound. I can't stand the, the smell of dead oil to this day. If I, I like, and I'm lucky enough, I don't go to a lot of places where people have a reason to have 
at Detroit, but I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a sexual health workshop I was running in a residential home for uh, for young people under the guardianship of the minister. And at, one of the young girls had just had a baby, so I think she had Detroit in the room. And I just, was just walking down the hall, and I just got a whiff of the smell. Uh, it took me all the way back. I've lived in Australia for 19 years. It took me all the way back to that place, to sitting on that bathtub of their toil in pain, crying, wounded, and wondering, what the fuck just happened to me? Like, why has this happened to me? And I'll go on to never have a conversation with my mom for years, like years, until we came to Australia about this. She never explained what happened, why it needed to happen. The only recurring thing she kept on saying, we're now women, I'm now a woman. But what does that even mean? And why did I have to go through this to be a, 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 a woman, but that was my experience of female genital mutilation, also called female cutting or female circumcision. But both those names don't really, I don't think, cover truly what a heinous and what a brutal form of child abuse and gender-based violence that that act is. So it, mutilation is the best way to describe it. It is so confronting to listen to this, let alone even think about it, let alone to even come close to experiencing it. I, I, I can't help but to question, like, why? Like, why? The, like, can you just explain the why this does go on? What's the purpose? Is it to oh, rem- yes. completely eliminate pleasure? You know, what? why? Yeah. Why? I mean, and, and I think that's the recurring question everyone gets to once you describe an act like that. And before I go into the why, I want to explain that there are actually three different types of FGM. So what I experience will be classified as type 2. But type 1 FGM is when the hood of the clitoris is prick or cut. Type 2 is when the whole clitoris and parts of the labia minora or majora, which is the lips, lady. We don't, you know, we have lips down there. One set of those lips is cut. Type 3 is when everything is cut. So the clitoris and a set of lips is cut. And then the girl is sewn up so she has a tiny little hole to barely have her period and to barely pee. So when a woman with type 3 goes to the bathroom, this is what it sounds like. Drip. 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 She's there forever because she's barely able to actually have, you know, her pee come out. Like most of us just go and we gush out very quickly. No stress. Don't have to think about it. The woman with type 3, she's sitting there for at least 30 minutes just trying to empty her bladder. And her period barely comes out because that's how much of a tiny hole is left after she's sewn up. So you can only imagine all the health side effects that will come with that. So those are the major three types. Sometimes a girl may have more than one type of FGM. So she may have been cut and somebody decides that she wasn't cut enough. She's sent all the way back in to be cut more. So then it becomes even more complicated. So everyone listening, this is what we call female genital mutilation. And why would anyone want to subject little girls or women to this. Why? Like, it's senseless violence, very brutal, one of the most brutal form of child abuse, one of the most brutal form of gender-based violence. Why is this done? Well, the reason why this is done can only be described and called one thing. The evil that causes this to happen is called patriarchy. The patriarchy's obsession with women's bodies and needing to control their sexuality is what has created an environment where FGM can actually happen. 
because the child, the, the, the baby of patriarchy, obviously, is gender inequality, a world that says women are not equal to men, and that girls are less and second-class second citizens to their male counterpart. So FGM is, is practice to control the sexuality of women. Even little girls who are not even aware of their sexuality, a newborn baby girl who is not even a threat to anyone, all they do is pee, poo, and drink milk, is considered a threat. So it's done because there's this belief that a woman's um, clitoris is dirty and it needs to be cut off because it will smell. It's done because they believe that the clitoris will grow as long as a tongue and drag on the floor. And you know what I say to that? I would love to have an extra large clitoris. I don't think there's anyone who will complain about having an extra large clitoris. Can you imagine having spontaneous orgasms, like, in your life? Like, I'm just saying. But we know that it's shit, first of all. The clitoris is not going to grow long. It, 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 it's not anatomically possible. That's not what is going to happen. The other reason given for FGM and the, the concern for it is that it's done to also prepare girls for marriage. That you know, if they are, if they can stay a virgin, then they will, they would uh, command more of a larger dowry, which is the money exchange given at, at uh, when an, a marriage um, arrangement is done. So the it, oh, literally a price is put on the girl. Her worth is put into a price, so she gets a bigger dowry if she's a virgin. And FGM is done to ensure that she's a virgin, so to control her sexuality, to ensure she's not promiscuous, to ensure she has no sexual desire, to ensure she's a good, clean, pure girl for a man who probably has been out in the streets sowing his oats everywhere. But the patriarchy says that's fine. He should start. But the girl, she needs to be clean and pure and, and be a good girl. She doesn't need to be having sex. She doesn't need to have a sexual pleasure. She doesn't need to explore. She doesn't have a right to be a sexual being. So we will mutilate you to ensure you're not a sexual being. These are the main reasons thrown around. Religion sometimes is thrown around, but FGM predates Islam and Christianity. So it's actually not condoned or supported by any religious text. The heart of FGM is patriarchy and gender inequality. That we live in a world where there's such an obsession with women's bodies, the need to control it, the need to sexualize it, even when a child, a girl is a baby girl, she's a child, we're sexualizing them already. We're looking at them through the eyes of that they're sexual beings and that that needs to be controlled, that they threat to the world. And I also think, funnily enough, I think men are threatened by the clitoris because the clitoris is purely there to actually give pleasure. They're threatened by that. They see that as a direct competition to the fucking penis. And we live in a penis-centric world. Let's be honest. The penis is run the world. God forbid you do anything to upset a penis and everything fucking comes to a standstill. And, you know, the only equivalent to female genital mutilation would be if you cut off a man's whole penis. Mm. Not just male circumcision. You would have to cut off the whole penis for it to be actually equivalent. Can you imagine a world where we went around cutting off the penises of little boys? Mm. What the fuck would happen? Mm. They will call an international summit. You know, school coronavirus. These people will literally stop. The whole world will stop to make sure we stop doing that. But yet 200, 200 million women and girls have been caught in the world and the world hasn't stopped. Nothing has been done enough to stop this form of violence against them. In Australia, 200 women, 200,000 women and girls have been cut. 
nothing has been done. How is that possible, Khadija? I saw that. I know that, you know, you mentioned in one of your talks as well, it's true that FGM is a problem in Australia. And I just couldn't get my head around that, that that it's a problem in Australia. How do, I mean, obviously there's no healthcare provider that's doing this. So it's done in, you know, in someone's home or, you know, or behind the scenes. Is that right? Well, I'm I'm sorry to say to you, Jenna, but there are health professionals who actually do FGM. The medicalization of FGM is actually a huge issue all over the world where medical uh, professionals think that they're doing harm minimization by practice, by actually uh, abiding by parents' requests to cut their little girls. But also we have health professionals who are in this for the money. Their oath of do no harm, that's left the building and it's gone somewhere else, but they are doing harm. They are participating in, in the mutilation and the, 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 the sexual and physical assault of little girls. But this does raise a good conversation and a good question you have raised. How does this happen in Australia? How has this become an Australian problem? For the audience, probably, if this has been advertised and by the time they start listening to this, they'll be assuming I'm about to say, well, this happens in the African countries, it happens in Middle Eastern countries, it happens in Asian countries. That's true. But FGM has always been practiced in the West as well. FGM did not come to Australia actually through migration, as most people would assume and have been led to believe. So let me take you a little bit back into history. FGM was practiced in the Western countries like Britain, Australia, the U.S. in the 1980s during what we, we, we was called the female hysteria was happening. And I think that was probably was women being on, on their periods and having PMS, PMS you know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when I'm PMSing, God knows I, I, I'm like a different human completely. You don't want to be anywhere near me. I'm not, you know, I'm not accountable for any of my actions. Give me some chocolate, give me some yogurt and fuck off is what I want to do with <laughs> But, you know, but in the 1980s, you know, it was named female hysteria, women were out of control. Um, all it took was for husband to say, my wife is not listening to me, and she, she, she's asking me questions about my whereabouts, she needs to be tamed. And clitronomy, which is the cutting of the clitoris, was actually performed on a generation of white Anglo women had their clitoris cut or altered to actually put them in their place, to actually calm them down. Funny enough, it will be around the same time that the dildo and vibrators was actually created to actually maybe somebody decided, the doctor thought that if women just had more, you know, orgasms, if they just had something to help them, you know, achieve some pleasure, they may actually calm down. I, I would choose, you know, that version any day. But, you know, we, we did see a generation and we see with the continuation of that act in Western countries. So what we now call female genital mutilation is not a foreign issue to Western countries. It's not something that we can just say, well, it's the African woman, it's the Middle Eastern woman. That's just the way that we have viewed the issues, the way the definition of FGM has been interpreted as a racially motivated um, a definition or racially motivated act. But the reality is, like I said to you before, FGM is done due to patriarchy. And Every country across the world, we know the world is literally most countries are patriarchal by nature. So that then tells you that this act cannot just be limited to certain parts of the world. And what would we have also seen in Western countries that as well, clear autonomy was done and we slowly saw that increase. And it then became what we now know as more than labiaplasty. And not labiaplasty for girls, for adults. I'm not talking about what an adult woman chooses to do to her body. I'm all for body autonomy as a feminist. I believe women should have the right to do as they please with their bodies. But when it's for girls under the age of 18, it would actually meet the requirement of FGM. 
because it says the ultra, you know, cutting of the female genitalia for non-medical reason. Why does a 13-year-old girl need labiaplasty? Her body is still developing. Last year, I read an article where an Anglo woman took her 13-year-old daughter to the cosmetic surgeon to have labiaplasty done. She thought her daughter's lips were just, one was just a bit uneven. A, I want to know why she was so close to her daughter's genitalia to even observe this. I think that that, that itself is a question we should be asking. But second of all, we know bodies come in all forms and shapes. The female genitalia is so diverse and beautiful and just, you know, such a... a interesting, you know, lips are long, they're tall, they, 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 they're wide, they, they, they have different colors and texture. That's all normal. So to actually be, to be taking little, you know, young girls to, to cosmetic surgery to have labiaplasty is a non-medically necessary surgery. That does meet the definition of FGM. So I say all of that to say that 200,000 is actually quite a conservative number because it won't take into account those little those girls who have been forced, who can be blonde, blue eye, red hair, brown eyes, green eyes. So the look of FGM is not just African, Middle Eastern, Asian anymore. It is quite a, a very universal uh, sort of practice that's just been interpreted as being ethnic uh, for the, the other woman, the, the uncivilized woman. And we're not taking into account the context in which it happens in the West, where it's done, yes, at a surgery, uh, but still medically unnecessary. Another act that will meet the definition of FGM in Western countries, I don't know if you've heard of this one, is the husband stitch. I know quite a few Aussie women have had the husband stitch. In fact, I spoke to a friend the other day who said when she was having her baby, the doctor turned to her husband and winked at him and said, I'm going to add extra stitches just for you, mate. Mm. So without her consent, a doctor decided to add extra stitches down there to tighten her vagina up for the pleasure of her husband. Let's say that again. For the pleasure of her husband. Mm. With no consent. All of this is so significant. I mean, this issue is enormous and I just, its I don't think it's something that we're quite aware happens in our, I mean, regardless where it happens, it's an enormous issue. But the fact that this is happening in, in Australia, it certainly says that it's an extreme issue and it should be addressed and we should be aware of it. And I know the work that you do is dedicated to ending FGM. How can we all help? You know, is there anything that we can do, spreading the word, educating? What can we do to be part of this journey of ending it, basically? Yes. Thank you very much. I think that is such a good um, question and definitely a great conversation we all need to have. All forms of child abuse should be everyone's business. We all, I think, as a community, as a society, should care about child abuse, should care about violence against women. FGM is interesting in that in every state in Australia, FGM is a crime and it comes under the child protection law. It also sits under family and domestic violence because it's more likely to be perpetrated or organized by family members. So that's why it's also family violence. We just saw a couple of weeks ago where a woman and her children were murdered in Australia, were burnt down. Violence against women and girls in Australia is a huge national emergency. It is terrorism against women and girls. It's gender-based violence. It's discrimination on the basis of one's sex. This is an issue. FGM sits in that. It's not a separate topic. It's not a separate cultural issue. It's a human rights abuse. So I think for the audience, I want you, when FGM comes up or you talk about it, talk about it from the perspective of this is a human rights abuse. We need to name it for what it is. 
language is very important. This is child abuse. This is gender-based violence. Naming it and framing it that way really gives it, I think, significance and the attention that it deserves. I think we also then need to have that buy-in. You don't need to know somebody's gone through FGM. Most likely not everyone's going to go around talking about what's happening between their legs. Definitely not. But I think all forms of gender-based violence should be treated as inexcusable. There is no but. There is no excuse. If you hear anyone going, but he was drunk, or but that's their culture, or but I heard there's some benefits. FGM has no benefits whatsoever. It's lifelong health consequences for the girls and the children and the women that it, that it is perpetrated against. If they're lucky to not bleed to death, they go through shock, PTSD, sexual dysfunction, infertility, um, lifelong infections, uh, cysts, fibroids, even the transmission of HIV, hepatitis B, depending on how it is done. There is certainly no benefit whatsoever. So there's no argument in any universe where this will be okay to be done to girls and to women. I want the Australian community to treat FGM and give it the, the, the seriousness it deserves like other forms of child abuse. Because what is interesting about FGM is that you only need one opportunity for a child or a girl to be subjected to this. One chance, but her whole life is changed. One opportunity. So if any of us are aware that a child is at risk, and for those who are working in professions where they're mandatory notifiers, please reach out to me for FGM training and education for your workplace, for your school, for your hospital, because that is such a great way for you to educate yourself so you can know who is at risk and how you can protect and support them. Because all it takes is one opportunity. And once a girl has been cut and mutilated, I am sorry, but no amount of sorry in this world will, will, will make it okay. No amount of we should have known better will fix it. it. We need to be preventive. We need to be ahead of this so that we are not having to apologize and not having to say sorry to little girls and say, under our watch, we let this happen to you. Raise awareness. Share this podcast on, uh, to your friends, your family members. I have a TED Talk that goes into more details about my personal experience. Share that. Take it to your workplace and say, hey, I think this is something we should tackle. Take it to your schools. I think we should have somebody come in and do some training and some sexual health education. Include this in your curriculum. If you're running a sexual education class in your classroom, don't assume everyone has a clitoris. Don't assume everyone is team clitoris. Talk about the fact that some girls may not have a clitoris, that some, in some places a girl may be at risk of this. When I've done trainings in schools, I've had teachers call me and say, because of your education, because of your training, I was able to have girls come to me and say, hey, teacher, I'm at risk of this. I think my parents want to have this done to me. How can you help me? And we have been able to protect little girls. What I am saying to all of you is that we can protect these girls. We can be their protectors. We can be the clitoris army, hashtag clitoris warriors, the people who understand that all girls, all women deserve to have body autonomy, deserve to live a life where their bodies are protected, they're safe, and have sexual pleasure, sexual exploration, to just not have their sexuality be under attack or be under threat. We can all be part of that clitoris warriors. We can all be part of that clitoris army. We can just be humans and people who say we won't allow this form of child abuse to be in our community. So raise awareness, book training, share the TED talk, have these conversations in your families, in your communities, in all areas of our society. We need to give this the attention it deserves. Because what is sad is this Jenna, FGM sort of sits in this intersection of racism and sexism. If this was predominantly affecting blonde, blue-eyed girls, if there were more of the 200%, I'm sad to say, 
that this will have been tackled. Mm-hmm. The reality is that there's a racial element in why this hasn't been given the attention because predominant people are thinking of the brown little girl, the Asian little girl, and her life just doesn't matter as much. That is sad, but it is the reality. We live in a, a world where not all lives matter. Not We don't have equality, racial equality. So some issues are not tackled or given attention because it's just... It's not as important compared to something else. So let's, what I'm calling on everyone is that we can change that. Be a person who changes that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about your experience. And if you had had a warrior in your corner and this didn't happen to you, how different would your life be today? It would be very different. It, it would be different. I will, you know, my, I have limitations on my life. I live with the health side effects of FGM. I, I have... My periods are heavy. They're painful. I get admitted to the emergency when I have my period. From the age of 13, I will, every month, I'm at the emergency giving morphine drip uh, because that's the level of pain I'm under. I'm on the floor screaming and crying in pain for a whole week, unable to even walk to go to the bathroom. I will crawl on the floor like an animal because that's how much pain I am in. Then I found that I had fibroids and cysts that then had me diagnosed with infertility. The fact that I got pregnant is a miracle. And while I was going through my pregnancy, I had a high-risk pregnancy because of FGM. A very high risk. At every turn for the nine months, I was so scared I was going to lose my baby. I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to hold him in my arms, that I would lose him. I was so scared that I would not get the treatment I deserve, medical appropriate treatment, so that I can deliver him safely because all the health professionals I encountered were incompetent. They had no clue about FGM. So I had to advocate for myself. Can you imagine being pregnant, hormonal? You're so vulnerable than having to fight and advocate very hard, very aggressively with health professionals for them to listen to me, to hear me as I was saying to them. I can't have a vagina birth. I have scarring in there. So cesarean might be the only option. And being argued with and told, oh, you don't know what's going to happen. I know my body. And I am the expert. And I'm telling you, you could endanger me and my child if you force me to try to push through my vagina when there's so much scar tissue that it's already been shown to be there. That would impact me. You could hurt I could lose my baby today. You would then traumatize me and, and, and scar me for life. You're not listening to me as I'm telling you about it. So it, it, it was very, 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 very hard. And I, I want to spare a girl from going through that. I want to spare a, a woman from going through that. Nobody should ever have to be in that position. Just like we should have one woman a week killed by a current or former partner because we live in a society that still sees women's lives as being meaningless, as just being a casualty to just be, you know, to just... Oh, it's so sad that this is our reality. We have little mm. girls growing up, you know? I think horrible. this is unacceptable. It is it's, horrible. It's, it's, it's yeah. unacceptable. It is. Are you at all angry with your mum? Surely you were initially, but are you today at all angry with her? Well, you know, like like all forms of violence and abuse, you know, you have this interesting relationship with, with the perpetrator. Family violence is interesting in that the perpetrator is usually somebody you know, you know, somebody who's meant to care for you, love you. In my case, my mom. My mom should be the one to protect me. She should be the, least, the, the only person I should not be unsafe with. That's, the, that's how it should be in an ideal world. But unfortunately for me, I found myself in a situation where my mother is the person who paid someone else to commit such a a crime against me. But she didn't do this with bad intention, mind you. My mom's intention was she thought if she mutilated me, and this is the title of my, my TED Talk, my mother's strange definition of empowerment. She thought in that cultural context, 
If I wasn't cut, I would be dirty, I would not be marriageable, we would have been ostracized, I would not belong, I would not fit in. She was doing what the patriarchy had told her needs to be done to fit in, to be a woman, to be a mother. That's what you do to your daughters. It's sick, it's sick. Yeah, and it is twisted, but that is the reality of how the patriarchy works, that women are subjugated to choices and options that literally endangers them. So I, I was angry. I spent years been angry. My work is fueled by that anger and injustice of the act itself. But no, I don't hate my mom and I certainly have forgiven her. I didn't forgive her for her. I forgive her for myself. So I will not leave because it, unforgiveness has a way of eating at you. It eats away at you, at your soul and who you are. And I needed to channel uh, my feelings and the pain and the righteous anger that I felt towards action to make sure that no other girl goes through what I have to. I went through. Nobody protected me, but by God, I am a protector for other girls out there. So, I, no, I'm not angry with my mom. I pity my mom, and I feel sorry for her that, you know, she, like myself, was a victim of this, and, and she lived in a society and lived under a system um, of patriarchy that says that this is what needed to be done to women and girls, but, but I hold her accountable completely for her act. And like I said to her at the age of 13, this stops in my generation. It will not happen to one more baby girl in my life. I may not have been able to stop what happened to me, but I will make sure it doesn't happen again. When we know better, we do better. So I know better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to ensure this stops, not just in my family, not just in my community. I'm part of a global movement trying to end FGM by 2030, a global movement that says that we can end this by in a generation. We can ensure this is not a conversation we have in the next generation. So I think, you know, like when bad things happen to you, I'm a believer that, you know, we don't choose what happens to us, but we choose how we react to it and we choose what we do with that experience. Which and is, I have dedication. Yeah, I'd love to touch <laughs> on that because you, despite all that you've experienced, I mean, what I pick up through your TED Talks and social media, you have this beautiful sense of humor and I just struggle to figure out where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I have heard people have gone, I watched your TED Talk and I had popcorn with me. I'm like, okay, that's a bit strange. Oh, look, I, I have a way of, I do, have, I'm accidentally a comedian. I think I'm an accidental a funny person. I don't mean to be so <laughs> funny, but I think in life, you know, you have to have a sense of humor. But like I said, I think it's all about perception, what you take away from these experiences. None of us ever deserves to go through any form of abuse or violence, and none of us chooses that to happen to us. But I think at some point there is a choice that can be make, made about how you, what you do with that experience. And as a little girl, as I was angry, as I'm on the floor crying in pain, in those moments, you know, I am challenged by the level of pain. I mean, I'm challenged by the anger I feel towards the person I know is responsible for it. I'm challenged by the anger I feel that I, I as a girl in this world, like so many other girls, no matter where they live in the world, we face, you know, gender inequality. We just had International Women's Day, you know, we still have the stats saying that the girl child is, you know, is at risk of FGM, child marriage, lack of access to education, clean water, uh, domestic violence. It, it's not looking good. It looks quite bleak in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, I take away from somebody's experience all those other forms of violence that I can choose to be part of the solution. I can harness my experience to be a change maker, to ensure that I am a protector for other little girls, that I'm my sister's keeper, that I'm there standing beside other women, 
supporting them, uplifting them, ensuring that we're having these conversations, empowering them to have a voice, to speak up for themselves, to seek safety, to empowering women to make those choices for their daughters, to make a different choice than my mom did. And I do that every day. By showing up, I literally make, you know, make a difference. And I, you know, I have a couple of stories of that. A couple of years ago, I went to Tasmania to do a talk on FGM, and I've been to Tasmania a couple of times. And I particularly remember this workshop was me talking to mainly survivors, women who had gone to FGM themselves from different communities. And I was able to, you know, articulate to them that they didn't choose what had happened to them, but I gave them a call of action to be the ones who protect their daughters, to ensure that they make sure their daughters didn't go through this. And I was able to highlight the challenges they face and make sure they knew the side effects of FGM and they lived with those side effects to ensure that they didn't actually give their daughters the same fate. I would leave a couple of years later, go back, come back to Adelaide. Then I you know, went to Melbourne for another conference. And I had a social worker come up to me and said, are you Khadija? I said, yeah, I'm Khadija. He said, I have a message from a lady who is in a domestic violence shelter we run. And Tasmania went, oh, okay. <laughs> Don't remember having any dealings with those shelters. And he said, well, she went to one of your FGM talks. And she said that you gave her a call of action to ensure that she protected her daughters. She went home, and years later, her husband would start pressuring her that they needed to subject their two daughters to FGM. She heard your cry. She heard your call. She heard your message. Sorry, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Um, and when her husband started pressuring her, she knew that she had to do the right thing, that she needed to be for her daughters what nobody was for her. So she fled to the shelter with her two baby, beautiful baby girls to ensure that they would not be subjected to this. And I share that to say to all survivors listening to this, we can be those change makers. And when we show up, and I think there's a beautiful quote that when one woman speaks up for herself, she speaks for so many. And it's not an easy journey to be an activist at all. And it's not that I don't have my bad days. Oh, God knows I have my bad days. And I have days where people come at me from everywhere. People attack me. They send me death threats. They tell me I'm the worst. I'm the scum of the earth. But I show up for those precious little babies. Because when I showed up that day, I was able to save not two lives, actually three lives. Because mm. I was able to validate that woman in her experience. And I was able to empower her to protect her baby girls, and I will never meet those girls. And it reminds me of another little girl in my community who years ago came to a workshop. I was running, talking to young girls, African girls particularly, about FGM, and saying to them, despite living in Australia, they may still be at risk. And years later, I would end up in a workshop talking about feminism, and she was there. And she said to me, you saved my life. And I said, I don't know how I could have done that. I haven't seen you forever. She said, well, years ago, you were doing a workshop on FGM. And you told me that I may be at risk. And you gave me a couple of words that if my parents ever said that to me, that I should ask for help. You said they might come home one day and say, we're taking you back home. You're going to become a woman. You are going to, you know, we're going to have a special party. We're going to celebrate you. She said, if I, you said if I ever heard these words to know that FGM is probably what they were talking about. She said, mind you, she said, I was at home one day, I was studying at uni, and my mom came home and said, we were going on a holiday, it was going to be a nice trip, and there was going to be a special party. She said, I thought to myself, where have I heard these words before? A party, I'm going to become a woman. She said, I thought, oh my God, this is what Khadija was talking about. She said, this was years ago, though, you talked about this. But it stood out, those key words. So she went to her dad and said, Dad, I think mommy's taking us back home 
to have FGM done to us. And the dad took it very seriously. She, was go she went on the holiday, but that made sure that she was protected. She was never left, left alone with her mom and their family or anyone. She was just well looked after. And I'm, I'm, and I'm happy to announce to everyone that this beautiful young girl has graduated from university. She runs her own business. She's healthy. She has a healthy sexual life. She tells me about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we talk Good about orgasms all the time. <laughs> um, she lives a happy, healthy life. She has a younger sister. She's looking out for her younger sister. There is power in our stories. There is power when we show up, you know, show up every day. There is power when we share our experiences. We validate another woman out there. We give voice to her experience. We are... When we raise our voice, we raise our voice not just for ourselves. So I find strength in that. I find strength in knowing I am making a difference. I find strength in knowing I've turned something so neg negative and horrific and I have turned it into a movement. I am the lead voice on FGM in Australia. Without me speaking out and sharing the details of my life and what is obviously horrific and very personal details about my body and what my body looks like, I have been able to gather attention to a nation that before did not even have a clue. FGM was something that could happen right here. They thought it happened across the world. I have been able to gather funding to ensure that this is something we look at. I've been able to provide training to doctors, nurses, teachers, gone to government level to advocate on this. I've gone all the way to the UN. I've gone to Malta to ensure that this is tackled even at the Commonwealth level. That's the power we all have, ladies. So happy International Women's Day for um, uh, Sunday. But this is what we, how powerful we are as women. The ability to give birth and to, to give birth to movement and to change lives and to birth beauty and to, to be protectors. And so, I, absolutely. And I echo that. I educate, you know, I urge everybody to listen to your TED talk and to jump on the social media and follow you and to, you know, educate themselves and then share the story and talk about it with everybody and anyone who, you know, is, is who will, will listen. And I, I don't know anybody who wouldn't listen because it is such a significant and horrific um, issue that is faced with us. And it's, it's right in front of us. So I, Absolutely back you and um, and I urge everybody to follow, get behind you and then to share this as well and um, and if we can do anything to support you in your journey then um, well, that's just it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Khadija, I've got one last question for you and uh, it's something that uh, we do in 21st Century Women. Do you have a quote, one that might inspire you or one that you live by? I'm sure you've got a couple given this. I can just imagine that you've got something hanging on your bathroom mirror or something that you live by. <laughs> oh, I do. But before I actually say that, can I say to everyone, one of my goals beyond raising awareness about FGM is that I need to raise $200,000. So please, anyone who wants to fundraise, have a clitoris cupcake, high tea. I don't know if you've seen clitoris cupcakes, their whole thing. Very yummy and delicious. Those who want to bake, bake away, have the hashtag Clitoris Warriors. But we, I need to raise $200,000 to ensure I can support those 200,000 women and girls and I can continue my work. So feel free to reach out if you think you can help in any way. Yes, and that leads me to my code. It actually fits. All it takes for evil to prevail is for a few good men, and I'll add women, because I think the original one is sexist, you include women, for a good few men or women, I think, to do, uh, to do nothing. So what it's saying is that all it takes for evil or all the bad things to happen in the world, the injustices for them to happen, is because we 
we are sitting back and doing nothing. So we are the change makers. We are the answers to the challenges our families, our communities, our nation face. We are the actual answers. And all it takes for those injustices to happen, to continue to happen, is us sitting by and doing nothing. I live by that. It gives me a call of action every single day in my life. When I'm tired and I'm exhausted, when people come at me, I remember I am that change. I am the answer. And if I show up, if I do my part, then that's actually a start already. So that's my call of action to all of you. Don't be the few good men and women who do nothing in the face of the injustices of gender-based violence, FGM, domestic violence. Be those change makers. Use your voice. Use your power. Use your privilege. Use whatever you have avail available to you. There's nothing like small change. It all adds up. Be the change makers. Be the answers. Thank you. Thank you, Khadijah. Thank you, Jenna.